to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with Josiah Hyman, Professor of Anthropology, Endowed Professor of Border Trade Issues, and the Director of the University of El Paso's Center for Inter-American and Border Studies. He is the author of Finding a Moral Heart for U.S. Immigration Policy, an Anthropological Perspective, and Life and Labor on the Border, Working People of Northeastern Sonora, Mexico, 1886 to 1986. He has been an editor for influential collections, including States and Illegal Practices and the U.S.-Mexico Transborder Region, Cultural Dynamics and Historical Interactions. He's a teacher, a scholar, and he's been part of the El Paso community since 2002. We spoke in his office in November. Thanks for speaking with me uh, today. It's really nice to be down here in El Paso. Yeah, El Paso is a lovely place. You wrote an essay for CMS with Jeremy Slack and uh, Daniel Martinez called Why Border Patrol Agents Should Not Serve as Asylum Officers. Um, And that essay was centered on the Migrant Border Crossing Study, um, a survey of over a thousand recently deported Mexican migrants who crossed the border, were apprehended, and then deported to Mexico. Some of the findings of that survey were pretty troubling. Uh, could you could you say a, a bit about that survey and its findings? Yeah, the, the, in the first place, this survey is really a uh, unsurpassed uh, body of information about people's immigrants' experience um, on the whole in the United States uh, with the enforcement system. Um, about how they crossed the border, uh, how they were arrested, how they were and how they were deported. Um, the reason it's such a valuable source is that it's not just selected on people who were expressing complaints or abuses, but rather it's a cross-section of everybody who had been deported. And, and so we have a clearer idea of how often they, they did encounter problems or didn't encounter problems for that matter. And I should give special kudos to Dan Martinez and, and Jeremy Slack, who did the work in the first place. And it's really their work. I've just come in to help apply it to some public policy issues. One of the things we found that's very memorable in the, the data, just jumps right out at you, is that uh, is the frequency of abuses by U.S. authorities. 11% of uh, the people surveyed, deported people surveyed, that, that f- said that they'd been physically abused. And about two-thirds of those physical abuses were by Border Patrol. Um, so we're talking about something on the order of uh, 6 to 7% of everybody had been physically abused. Likewise, uh, 23% said that they'd been verbally abused. And of that, about three quarters of those were by Border Patrol. Uh, or 18% of all the people who'd been deported who'd had contact with U.S. authorities, 18% of them said that they'd been verbally abused. Now, the verbal abuse part is really useful and interesting. Physical abuse is terrible. And we shouldn't accept it. But the reason the verbal abuse is interesting is that they actually recounted what was said to them. And that gives us an insight into the kinds of stereotypes and biases and attitudes and tendencies. 
Sometimes people reported things that were fairly innocuous that they were bothered by, but weren't serious. But most of them were quite disturbing. And this is, this led to us applying that material to a recent public policy initiative, which is to use Border Patrol agents as asylum officers. So what we're basically saying in, in a very straightforward way is that there is a significant frequency of Border Patrol agent encounters with, with migrants where they express prejudicial uh, attitudes through what they say. A reasonable percentage is 18%. You know, it's just under uh, one in five encounters, which is really shocking, shockingly frequent, one in five. Uh, so it doesn't, not everybody's doing it. This is not a characterization of every Border Patrol agent, it's, but it's a characterization of a really large segment. Now, it helps to understand what an asylum officer does. The an asylum officer is the person who first receives a description by uh, the migrants, uh, whether they're authorized or, or unauthorized migrants, of why they feel like they have fear of being returned. So the asylum officer makes a first stage determination. And this first stage determination uh, is called uh, in most cases, it's credible fear. There's another line of legal assessment, depending on the person's background, that's called reasonable fear. But either way, they're, they're fairly similar. Credible fear is that there is sufficient basis at this first stage for thinking that somebody has a believable fear of being returned, being deported to the country that they came from. It's essential, like it's a, it's a go, no-go decision by the U.S. immigration system. If they're, if they're given credible fear, they then move into the immigration court system where the details of their asylum uh, request are judged. If they don't, if they're turned away at the point of credible fear, then they're deportable and they will be sent home to whatever situation they're in. There's very clear legal uh, and regulatory language that governs credible fear. And the credible fear is supposed to be, uh, based on the plausibility of the evidence at that, in that first interview. It's not a matter of the final judgment, but just does it, is there a reason for thinking that we should go ahead and do a formal immigration court case for asylum? So it's a, it's absolutely central to whether or not people can get asylum. Is it fair to say that if Border Patrol agents are acting as asylum officers, that people seeking asylum will get essentially no chance at the asylum system? Well, we think that we think that they that we don't think that they would necessarily get no chance, but we think that this um, that both on the basis of what is a well documented set of uh, negative attitudes towards immigrants. And that's what we have in our data, all of these statements, which is what our report analyzed. And in addition, we have, since the report was written and published, uh, evidence that the, the percentage of granting of credible fear, uh, is much lower by Border Patrol agents 
than by uh, the regularly uh, trained and uh, assigned asylum officers. We also know that the people who set up this program in the government, I mean, it's a very articulate statements by Stephen Miller, who's um, the immigration policy leader in the Trump administration. We know that they want to uh, cut back on granting of credible fear of this first stage. So we have three lines of evidence that the the statements that we have uh, collected and analyzed, the more recently than our report, lower than standard granting rates, and the statements of uh, the key decision makers in the government that they want these officers to not grant. Um, we know that this is deliberately done in order to decrease the chance of people being able to access the asylum system. So if someone were to meet a Border Patrol agent, they wouldn't really be meeting the immigration legal system. They would kind of still be meeting the enforcement system. They're meeting the enforcement system. Yeah, I mean, asylum officers have a very are part of not of Customs and Border Protection. Um, they are part of a different branch of DHS, Citizenship and Immigration Services. And Citizenship and Immigration Services has a role in the government that's different from um, simply uh, removing, interdicting uh, unauthorized activities and removing people from the country. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services has a service function in the government. It's what the organization that gives legal immigration. It's the organization that processes asylum claims. It's the organization that manages people who are in, in all of these processes, uh, gets the paperwork for them. So it's, it's an organization that has a very different, uh, job and a very different philosophy. And is there an analogy for what a USCIS officer is versus a border patrol agent? Is that like, the difference between a police officer and a social worker. Yeah, that, I think that's a that's a good analogy. I mean, a, a, the CIS has the capability of denying mm-hmm. uh, benefits and applications, and asylum officers deny about twenty percent of the, the credible fear cases that that are presented to them. So you know, they're not purely a social worker who's always assisting somebody, but they're they they are trained to have. Uh, a openness and balance that uh, is clearly not part of the organizational culture of CBP and especially the Border Patrol. And the other line on this is is not only that what is their function, but what we what we are actually able to discover about the culture of the Border Patrol from reading these statements. And the, the single strongest theme is the idea of keeping people out who are violating. Um, that outsiders are coming to violate the country. So there's a, an intense kind of nationalism and oftentimes racialized nationalism, resentment of Latin Americans that we see in, in the actual uh, text of these statements. I mean, you know, our essay has a number of quotes that are illustrative quotes of different categories of things that were said. And uh, they're quite oftentimes quite disturbing and shocking. Now, as I said, it's important to remember this is um, not every encounter. It's maybe one in five encounters. But nevertheless, it's said often enough things like, we're going to lose you in the desert. Or what are you coming over here to pop out babies? 
things that reflect a real uh, sense of hostility and verbal violence. Mm. Yeah. And um, when CMS published uh, that essay back in June, um, having CPB and Border Patrol agents as asylum officers, that was kind of just an idea that was being floated at that point, I believe. And then, you know, now it's actually moved ahead. Uh, could you provide a, a bit of an update on where that program stands, right. the scale it, of it? It is active. And it's my understanding that there's about 50 Border Patrol agents that I know of. They're not assigning CBP officers, but I, I'm, we don't, the government doesn't make a lot of information available to us, um, us in the public, I mean. Um, so, uh, but it's my understanding that there's about 50 border patrol agents now, uh, doing this, working at this. And, uh, there's a number of hundred. I don't, they don't publish a, a count of the number of cases that are handled in this way. In fact, they don't publish a count of, of percentage of cre credible fear, uh, granted and denied. Mm -hmm. Um, especially not by geographic location, such as the U.S.-Mexico border or nationality applying Mexican, Central American, and so forth. So we're, we're, you know, we try to pry out of the government some understanding of what they're doing. And meanwhile, they go off and do these things with really no, uh, regulatory review or regulatory check. Um, but it, we think that there's at least 50 and that they're training more. And do you have any idea, um, you know, what that training actually consists of? Um, I mean, they have described what the training consists of, and it's a training in the basic legal uh, regulatory language governing what is credible fear, or as I said, in some cases, there's a different criterion, reasonable fear. Um, it's a, what it a, what I have not seen a description of is a training in listening, in talking to people who are traumatized, in understanding complicated, messy stories, in translating from um, a, like mixed up and complex, uh, detailed narrative of what happened to me personally into legal categories, which have a certain kind of uh, simplicity and rigidity. But a well-trained asylum officer is trained precisely in listening and categorizing skills. Well-trained asylum officers also have uh, an access to data on country conditions. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not entirely sure how well prepared the Border Patrol agents who are doing this are on country conditions. And I do know from the 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 uh, quotations that we got from the migrant uh, border crosser survey that there are distinct prejudices against Mexicans and Central Americans. Um, now it's important to remember that the people who are presenting uh, asking for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border come from all over the world. Um, their single largest group are Central Americans, but that that's um, there's a great uh, amount of depth of understanding necessary to do credible fear judgments at places like the U.S.-Mexico border, where you might be getting people from Cameroon or Uganda, uh, as well as Honduras and Guatemala. Yeah. You know, zooming out from kind of this particular program, you know, I think a lot of people that um, 
don't live in border communities or maybe thinking about the culture of the border patrol overall for the first time. I think that has to do with, you know, how our president has talked about border patrol and, and also um, because of the some of the derogatory and dis- disturbing comments that were made in a at one point secret Facebook group. Could you speak to like what the culture of the border patrol is like today broadly and then also what sort of its cultural history has it has the culture changed over time? Well, there's really actually uh, quite a lot of continuity over time. And I personally have been around the border patrol and have studied them since um, I first did ethnography with Border Patrol as well as other branches of the then INS in the early 1990s. So now I'm getting close to, not, not quite, but getting close to 30 years. And we additionally have a number now of good histories of the border, uh, Border Patrol, Border Enforcement. It is an organization that has a special, a, a highly racialized specialization in identifying, arresting, and expelling Mexicans. Um, the Central Americans sort of get swept up into this as also Latin Americans who come through the U.S.-Mexico border, but that's the, the nature of the Border Patrol, a really um, clear, illustrative example, which continues to the present, is that they're, they're all trained in Spanish. Some of them speak Spanish already fluently, but uh, probably the majority of them have to have additional training in Spanish. So they're trained in Spanish, and the Spanish that they're trained in uses examples of peasant Mexican peasants who are migrating to the United States uh, to work. Also males. So they're not particularly well-trained to deal with women. They're not well-trained to deal with children. They're not well-trained to deal with non-Mexicans. They're trained to think of Mexicans as a subordinate uh, laboring population. They're trained in the legal categories of asylum. They memorize a lot of law. But as we know, memorization is the least effective form of learning possible. So they memorize this law, which makes them think, wow, there's, you know, absolute perfect law that's rigid, which is just the opposite of a complex asylum case. Um, but they, they've memorized the law, but they haven't actually ever been trained in the realities, in the realities of, uh, people who are fleeing, uh, in fear of their lives. Um, they're trained to arrest people who are trying to enter the country covertly, uh, not be uh, found in order to go to work, which is a, a significant group of people for sure. Um, but they're not being trained in the lives of people who are fleeing in fear of their lives and may actually literally, and this is what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, walk up to a Border Patrol agent and surrender and start immediately to express their their concerns and their fears. That, that's not what the Border Patrol has historically ever done and is concerned with. The Border Patrol used to really be quite closely associated with racialized white power at the U.S.-Mexico border. Starting in the 1970s, it gradually integrated a lot of Latino agents, uh, Mexican, Mexican origin. Uh, by now, it's probably about 50-50 or a little bit more than 50% uh, Hispanic. It's still a very macho, a very masculine workforce. The percentage of women workers is, uh, women agents is very, very low, and they tend to drive women out. 
It's also a very authoritarian organization which struggles to recruit and retain officers. This is uh, really an indicator that this is an organization that has problems when their own officers are demoralized and discouraged. This past fiscal year, um, with an effort to recruit, to literally to hire many hundreds, thousands of new officers, they managed to get a net 93, which meant that they're losing almost as many officers as they hire. One, one obvious change is that the number of um, Border Patrol agents has increased dramatically since the 90s. Um, and obviously, most of that staff are concentrated here on the southern border. So has it been a struggle for them to maintain the quality and the training of agents while scaling up? It's been an enormous struggle. Um, the that there there was there there had been some waves within this period so st- the the hiring starts let's say about 1994 and carries through the present um and there was a wave in the 90s and then there's another wave after 911 um and during those periods they were they had serious problems with lack of selectivity i mean the border patrol is not a selective organization um you don't even have to have graduated from high school to join the border patrol um, what it is selective for is uh, physical uh, ability to work in a difficult environment, the ability and the ability to memorize law in Spanish, um, and to be very obedient in a highly top-down authoritarian organization. So they've had these waves, and they've had a lot of problems with uh, corruption and sexual and physical abuse of people, including other officers. Among the waves of people that they hired in these big hiring rushes, they have become a l- more aggressive at investigating people who are getting hired. Um, they've uh, uh, used extensively uh, lie detector tests. There's more background investigation. Um, at the same time, they continue to have uh, a significant. The, the CBP has something on the order of five times the rate of uh, most federal agencies of uh, officers who are um, uh, disciplined for uh, legal abuses, Um, much of which is in their own lives. It's not only abuses of immigrants. The the abuses of immigrants, I think, is is connected to a broader problem of having – um, problematic officers all over the place. We now just recently received a report on that DHS produces on officers who have undergone discipline for things that r- go from lying on their, you know, on paperwork they submit all the way to uh, murder and assault and uh, rape. And they have a rate of that discipline that's about five times the normal expected level of discipline in in either police agencies or in federal agencies. So it's it's a it's a very troubled organization. And as far as them being disciplined, what's their disciplinary process like? Does it actually hold people to account in a successful way? Are are, are the penalties fitting with the um with the issues that are coming there, up? there really is not and that that's a that's a very good and a very important question um, the there's a indication that 
I have personally seen this in my work with the organization. And then the, this very recent reporting uh, has shown that there's a tendency for discipline to be symbolic and then put the person back out into the field. Um, this is an organization that has problems with not being able to maintain staffing. And they're desperate to keep people back out in the field. And they're also, it's a very insular, thin green line organization that circles, that, that makes the thin green line around their officers and protects them. So um, they do, you know, short periods of suspension and then put people back out in the field until they've done something so outrageous that they absolutely have to be uh, released. Or, you know, somebody, they're just out there abusing people. And abusing each other, a lot of the abuses are uh, Border Patrol agents abusing other Border Patrol agents. This set of issues is also an Achilles heel for the United States insofar as U.S. side uh, corruption at the border um, may well be, we think, on the basis of journalistic reporting, analysis of patterns, analysis of this, these discipline documents, this may well be one of the principal ways by which guns and money are exported from the United States and uh, hard drugs like fentanyl, um, cocaine, methamphetamine are imported to the United States. That corruption in the U.S., in U.S. border agencies, is a significant issue. So in some cases, people are just paying off agents to... To take I, in drugs? We, we or? know that. We know from the cases that these are the, the tip of the iceberg cases are the ones where something has been detected. And it's become, you know, a court case. And there's testimony and so forth. Although a lot of this has been kept uh, relatively quiet and secret. People have resigned rather than go to court. So, but we know the tip of the iceberg. And we think that there's a plausible reason to think that it's, it's, uh, it extends much further down um, than that tip. And I'm, I'm sure that includes human smuggling as well. It would include human trafficking, absolute human smuggling and human trafficking. Uh, includes anything where there's money at stake at the border. I mean, one of the, the as much as I love the border and I have a lot of, I, I'm a border resident. I've committed my entire life and my career to the U.S.-Mexico border. I've actually been working at the border since 1982. Um, uh, there's no doubt that the border is this tremendous, uh, uh, location for smuggling of anything from avocados to millions of dollars in physical cash and, and, uh, automatic, semi-automatic weapons. So, you know, this is an Achilles heel. If one were to try to think about what would be a intelligent alternative to the current U.S. policy, it would be why are we going after um, commonplace uh, working class immigrants, people fleeing in fear of their lives, when we should be trying to downsize uh, criminal organizations and the flow of resources that feed criminal organizations across the entire border in both countries. Many of the people who are uh, seeking asylum actually are people who are trying to get away from these criminal organizations. Many of the people, Jeremy Slack has done important work in a recent book called Deported to Death. Uh, many of the people who are being deported are being sent back as foot soldiers for criminal organizations that we're, we're feeding their um, the, that, that raw meat eating monster of criminality. And I'm sure as, you know, a professor in this community, 
you've probably taught students whose parents are undocumented as, as well as students whose parents are Border Patrol agents. I've taught Border Patrol. Uh, absolutely. Um, um, is there a tension there? There's the an underlying tension in the community. I mean, it is the border, and the border uh, uh, generally creates this sense of mutual tolerance, and we, you know, people have their different domains, and I rarely experience students actively conflicting with each other. Um, and in fact, lots of uh, people in the U.S., the various branches of the U.S. government at the border, uh, will tell you that they know within their own families, uh, other people who are undocumented or involved in, in smuggling at various levels. The border as a whole is uh, a place of relationships across difference. So it's a place where, just to give you an example that you know, initially may not seem to have to do with these dramatic issues, but it's a good example. Um, people have to be able to switch back and forth between Spanish and English. The, the average borderlander is bilingual, okay, to some degree. And the most common borderlander of all in El Paso and other parts of the U.S. borderlands are fluent bilinguals. And this is a kind of a model for the capacity of the borderlands to, uh, work with relationships. Now, this is not all happy and romantic and perfect and so forth because important relationships between a wealthy, powerful country like the United States and a large and, and middle, middle income country like Mexico, important relationships are still highly unequal. Um, there's a lot of economic inequality. There's a lot of political inequality, inequality of legal immigration status. But on the whole, the border is a place that has the capacity to, has a, can, can offer a model for how to make, um, working relationships, the tolerance, reaching across differences, figuring out how to broker, how to relate. The good side of that is the ability to, uh, cross borders, literally. The, the bad side is the corrupt, some of the corruption I was talking about before, though. These things are part of one, one package. So now El Paso in particular, uh, which is, is close to the center of the U.S.-Mexico border and is one of the largest, uh, binational metro, with Sierra Juarez, one of the largest binational metropolitan areas, uh, in the world. Um, El Paso in particular has a, a community vision for the future. Um, you know, not everybody is part of this. There's a million people on the U.S. side of the border between El Paso and southern New Mexico, and there's that means there's a million opinions. But um, on the whole, El Paso has forged a kind of a, a community vision for the future. It's referred to, it's been referred to recently by the Border Network for Human Rights as the new Ellis Island. The place that where new young adults forming families and going into work are reaching across the border and uh, building new lives in the United States. And some years ago, we uh, organized here, the Border Network actually organized it. I was one of the people who did the, you know, took notes and talked and, and did write up a uh, We Are the Border conference. And it was a discussion about what a, a positive, constructive future vision would look like. And had the good fortune to 
uh, published an article about this in the uh, Center for Migration Studies uh, journal, uh, Journal of Migration Human Security. Um, and people can look at it in detail, but what uh, it is in this fundamentally is a notion about how we're going to build on the positive vision, the positive qualities and the positive vision of this binational setting of the way we bring people together across boundaries of difference and negotiate those differences and build on that for the long-term future. So it's, it's a reply to the question, okay, so you're so critical, but what are you going to do that's different from Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that we have a vision here of what's different from Donald Trump. And has it been harder to project that vision as the Trump administration's policies have um, kind of put been put into effect? Is it harder to, to project think, that vision? I think everybody knows now that uh, we are undergoing a period of intense polarization. So on one side of this polarization is a um, rhetorical, a discursive a presentation of the border as a site of fear and danger. That this is the border that's at risk, and only a intensely defended border can protect us against all dangerous things that are coming from outside. I, I, I call this the womb idea of the country. That we're inside this this womb, and the border is protecting us, um, and fr- it's protecting us from relating to other people. Is what it's protecting us from. Um, and that's, you know, we, that is absolutely one side of this highly polarized political scene that we're in now. But the other side that needs to get out there, and I think a lot of people understand that, is this, uh, uh, New Ellis Island, this America of the future, how the people here at the border are, are constructing um, with all the, you know, all the warts and all the challenges and all the difficulties constructing something new for the future. I mean, just as much as we would look back on American history and say, you know, when the Irish came, we were constructing something new for the future. When the Italians and Jews came, we were constructing something new for the future. When Mexicans came at the time of the Mexican Revolution, fleeing from the Mexican Revolution, we were constructing something new for the future. I think we're now doing that again, renewing the United States. And I think there's a very positive vision. And, and I, I, I think that El Paso actually has been quite remarkable in terms of being a leader. I don't want to say that we're unique because I admire very much things that people have done, uh, in, in, uh, the lower Rio Grande Valley and, um, Yuma and San Diego and other parts of the border. But, um, El Paso, I think, has been uh, a leader for example, a really good example is, I want to say 42 years ago, um, a small group of dedicated, uh, young, then young people, uh, founded Annunciation House as a no questions asked migrant shelter, migrant, uh, hospitality site for, for Central Americans. This was in response to Central American asylum seekers because they've always been coming to this border. Annunciation House has been a foundational model for providing that that uh, sanctuary to people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, and it has 
Annunciation House has definitely shaped the the community culture of El Paso, and it's an extraordinary institution. Um, when people were being released, you know, a thousand people or more were being released per per day in uh, early 2019. Annunciation House summoned over 3,000 volunteers to help feed, clothe, shelter them, get them connected to their relatives in the United States, help them purchase uh, bus and airplane tickets, help them get to their point of transportation, give them instructions, and help them move on. Um, and I, this, this is an extra, it was an extraordinary period of openness and generosity. It's been, it's been short-circuited by a harshly unfair and, and really dangerous uh, Trump administration policy called uh, the Migrant Protection Protocol. That's the most cynical term I've heard in a long time, because the last thing people are being protected is by sending them into these extremely dangerous and criminal organization-dominated cities of Mexico's northern border. Um, Tijuana last year was the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, Ciudad Juarez is the fifth most dangerous city. This year is worse. Um, and so now the U.S. is parking a lot of people in those Mexican border cities. Um, and we're now working on how to reach out there and uh, provide help to people who are stuck. And this is it's it's a much more difficult issue because they're stuck there for months. How are they going to live, you know, uh, in tent cities, in criminally dominated environments, uh, in a much poorer country because we want to keep brown people out of the United States. Yeah. But we're out there anyway. So I, the, the, the people in El Paso who have been helping uh, migrants are not necessarily rich people. Um, they're really common people all over the city. A lot of little Spanish language congregations. Um, I know people who've been helping the migrants have been, you know, oftentimes quite humble. Uh, people and um, have been absolutely generous and and of course we can do a more formal sort of public policy analysis and we can look at well do, uh, do we have room for migrants in the United States where a rapidly aging um, overdeveloped country uh, we absolutely have need we don't we don't it isn't a question of do we have room for charity we have absolutely have need for young people. I mean, my immigrants are, I want to say this, this is really something people I don't th I think fully grasp. People migrate when they're young adults. Okay. And you just could not ask for a better population to bring into a country than young adults. They're working age, they have children, the children are renewing the schools, they're going to make enormous educational and occupational progress, those children. Meanwhile, the adults are working in intense ways. Highly hardworking and productive. Are all immigrants perfect? Nobody, no, no population is perfect. But um, you you couldn't ask for a better, uh, let's call it elixir, a tonic to to revive American society than than bring in new young adults. You can read Josiah Hyman's essay "Why Border Patrol Agents and CBP Officers." should not serve as asylum officers on CMS's website. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. 
To get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org. <laughs>